Well, good morning. I thought I'd share a little short little thing. Um, I'll just call it that uh, autodidacts should be treasured. Should be treasured. Uh, I have this weird theory that if we were to support uh, our children, some of them learn faster than others, then it would help take some of the pressure off our education system. And that's not even the only place the kids should be learning, but keep it simple. Uh, it would take the pressure off because it would allow the advanced kids or the kids that can learn a little faster than others to support the slower learners, right? This community. But what it was, it was a question about um, um, when people mispronounce a word. It was actually in a reading book, which is why I mention it. Um, and the word was Ari. Things went a little Ari. Ari, right? A little off the tracks, a little weird. <clears throat> that one's very specific. It's an odd sort of pronunciation. Uh, but it reminded me of some personal experience. Um, in fact, I was thinking about this morning, I should actually mention that as a little note for myself, that I was thinking about maybe doing um, doing the little bio for the podcast. Uh, I've never been one to toot my own horn all that much. But... Well, that's a big part of it, right? Know thyself, uh, ego, uh, contextualization. I mean, you can't, as Nietzsche says, that we are, uh, we are the power that uh, propels our will. Uh, but what I was getting at is, I think this is an early lesson a lot of people need to learn, is how important autodidacts are, or self-paced, uh, or self-taught. Uh, I myself, uh, I've mentioned I'm dyslexic. I don't know if I mentioned I'm mostly... Uh, self-taught. Um, I went to school. I did go to high school, but I was in the French immersion program. So the majority of my education was just learning how to speak English and French. I did have math and history and such, but geez, uh, most of my actual uh, uh, tangible knowledge and experience came outside of school. Same as college. Uh, I went to college because uh, philosophy wasn't a thing. I went to college for um, economics. Right? Uh, I considered economics to be a form of philosophy. And business, they said, absolutely, that's a great idea. Uh, but one of, and I felt, uh, so I'll just read what I, what I wrote. So I said, uh, this is an early lesson many need to learn. The autodidact should be treasured, not ridiculed. I was lucky to get into college when young, so I was quiet and reserved. One of my first academic experiences was a crowd laughing about a professor ridiculing a student for mispronouncing the word epitome. Um, they, they were laughing because it was pronounced epitome. Uh, and, and I laughed because the shock to me would, was that a, a professor would make fun of anyone or the fact that I laughed because uh, at the time I was fluently bilingual in English and French, uh, so I heard people mispronouncing things daily. But no one's going around correcting them, let alone making fun of them. But as I said, because of that experience, the result left me uh, even more reserved for many years, right? Because I didn't understand at the time that this was in no small part a copium for some of these students who maybe felt challenged by other students who could learn on their own. And they even found it difficult learning in a group with mentors and, and a teacher. But neither here nor there. Let's just be human beings to each other. 
And I mention this uh, because, as I said, I was a self-taught. I was an autodidact myself. Most most uh, of what I knew was self-taught. Even when it came to accounting and business, I'd had one class in high school, and I guess my dyslexic slash ADHD slash spectrum personality led to me uh, becoming an authority on this. Uh, very similar to um, uh, stocks, stock market. Uh, bonds, uh, equities, I guess you'd say, but even um, uh, uh, commodities uh, became, you know, really, uh, really into commodities. In fact, uh, the teacher uh, felt that it was one of the best students he'd ever come across. Um, I got one of the highest marks on this. Uh, it's the registration course. It's a uh, a course you have to take in an exam you have to write called the Canadian Securities Course to become a stockbroker. I got one of the highest marks on that, uh, as I did with the mutual fund course. That was kind of a funny, kind of shows how um, dyslexics just need to be taught different. They're not unable to learn. Because what I ended up doing, again, I'm such a slow reader, uh, to ace the, uh, the Canadian mutual funds test. This was through the Institute of Canadian Bankers the most advanced course on mutual funds. Uh, a lot of um, knowledge, but also uh, legislation and rules and laws and all this sort of jazz, right? Uh, as well as formula, right? As I mentioned before, as a banker, you didn't have to know um, the formulas off by heart, but what you did need to understand was what the formulas told you, right? Uh, return on uh, investment, this idea of um, how much... Uh, does your investment yield? How much do you make profit uh, based on how much you invest as a as a percentage, right? Because then you can compare it to other companies. But I digress. I digress. I apologize. Um, so for me, this kept me very quiet for a very long time until, like I said, uh, little things like when I was told that I had achieved the highest mark in the mutual fund course. I mean, that really opened my eyes because I had spent a couple weeks reading the textbook, desperate, hoping that I could pass. Um, and in the end, I got the highest mark that they had ever seen on this test. And that happened to me recently with my uh, AZ. That's what we call a Class A or a commercial driver's license up here in Canada. AZ. Uh, Z is the air brake endorsement. Uh, class A means you can drive just about anything, um, period. Uh, because I'm also certified to drive boats, uh, ships, sail them as well. But more importantly, heavy equipment. So that's why I joke about I don't just say things on wheels because it can be on tracks. And <laughs> I kid, I kid. The reason why I mention it as a joke I stressed for days, and I even considered postponing my exam because we have to recertify every few years as a heavy equipment, uh, not a heavy equipment operator, as a Class A driver, you have to recertify both knowledge, rules of the road, and all this jazz. But what had happened in the past five years since I had actually been recertified the last time, the amount of actual um, legal knowledge they expected and the amount of rules like little things like how many meters do you have to keep between you and a bicycle and you know how many meters do you have to stop to a railroad track 
now they've added all sorts of different things like uh, what are the multiples for stopping, right? Uh, if you double your speed, uh, how much, uh, what kind of effect does that have? Gross vehicle weight. Long story short, I was so stressed because of the amount of data that they'd added and because of my, my lack of confidence about how I learn and my uh, dyslexic background. I just assumed I wouldn't be able to just pick this up in a few days because I had actually completely forgotten. Life gets in the way, right? I had had a, an extreme series of um, health scares. Uh, so I'd completely forgotten that it was this year that I had to get recertified. So I had a couple days um, prior to when it really needed to be done, right? Because my birthday fell like on the Monday after a weekend or something. So I had to get her done the week before. Otherwise, I how would I drive? Because again, welcome to Canada. The nearest uh, examination center is uh, a couple towns over. So there's no city bus, uh, walking, hitchhiking. I mean, you have to drive. Uh, I guess I could take like a Greyhound bus or something. But can you imagine spending an entire day just to go 20, 30 kilometers over? A couple towns over, uh, you know, spending the entire day and 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 on a hundred dollars on a bus ticket and and, uh, and transit uh, just to be able to go write a test. Oh man, that's weird, sad too. But what's really most funny about this is um, I just said, you know what, whatever, whatever happens happens, right? If if I flunk it because of stress and because of the, the new knowledge and I mean my brain was just a mess. Uh, Basil van der Koltz, a uh, very famous traumatologist. Um, I'm currently in a course uh, where he's teaching therapists, uh, psychologists, practitioners of mindfulness and, and trauma healing. Uh, and yesterday was about um, uh, managing the freeze response, uh, particularly uh, helping patients when you see them in freeze or it looks like they're going into freeze or even one step further being able to teach them how to manage and recognize it, yada, yada, yada. Um, he just finished saying yesterday exactly this, that you can't work with a patient if they're in freeze because they just shut down. They can't understand, they can't think, they can't um, access or even understand uh, anything that you're working with. Right? It's this brain fog that comes from stress. and So, I mean, I was done. Right? I, I couldn't even... So what I did is I went back to normal, right? This idea of breaking these things down into smaller pieces. So what I did is I took out a book and I started going through um, the actual book, each one of the books. There's about four or five books I have to do. Um, the bus book, the coach book, um, the class A book, uh, class D, which is like dump trucks. Um, the air brake is a separate book. And then the, obviously uh, road signs and actual uh, road knowledge, right? The Highway Traffic Act and all this other stuff. And you have to know a lot more as a Class A because you're expected to be a professional and therefore know a lot more. So I was just done, even if that's what I had to learn, right? Because of my lack of confidence. Uh, never mind the stress of life at the time and the rush. And then Canada is such a mess right now um, that I went and looked online and, and for the most part they were saying, you're looking at days, <laughs> Right, some people couldn't even get in. Uh, showing up at six in the morning, they still um, the line was too long that they couldn't get served that day. So I was afraid for so many different reasons, the catastrophizing, as it were. It ended up it was perfect. 
Uh, it was very quiet. I had a couple really nice people. There were some mess-ups with the camera and all this stuff, but they were super nice and helpful. I found out even that I could have listened to the questions. Uh, as a dyslexic, I could have just asked to hear the questions, and then that would have saved me a lot of stress, right? Because I often misread things because of my dyslexia. But lo and behold, I got 59 out of 60, right? 59 out of 60 uh, for the overall... Uh, final mark, right? Because what they do is they just randomize the test from, you know, however many questions. You don't know what you're going to get. The one that I got wrong is I misread. I was thinking they were talking about um, load weight, right? Uh, you know, like axle idea sort of weight, you know I mean? But they were just talking about gross vehicle weight, you know, curb weight sort of. I was just confused on the question because, again, stress. But in the end, like I said, I just broke it down. And I went back to Mortimer Alder, uh, and I used the analytical process. So I went through each book, reading them, making notes. Then I did the challenge uh, questions over and over again till I had absolute competency, not guessing, right? Where that I almost never got anything wrong, right? I was shooting for 9 out of 10 or 10 out of 10 on these tests. In the end, I got pretty close to near perfect. But again, my confidence was at a near zero because of the stress, my health situation, and everything else going on. Um, but in the end, it worked out perfect. I was even stressed about my eyes because I'm a couple years past when I should have got a new set of eyeglasses. But it ended up working out absolutely perfect. Why? Because I kept that stoic attitude, right? I just assumed if things go good or bad, I will treat them as imposters both and just roll with it. Amor fati, the eternal recurrence, right? And so that was how I went from being afraid of everything, right? Going to college, lack of confidence and, and uh, uh, even faith in oneself. Even when I was being told I was getting some of the most uh, impressive marks and I had some of the most impressive insights when it came to, to some of this stuff. Many teachers uh, turned to me to explain some of this stuff. I even had one philosophy teacher um, actually just say, yeah, there's nothing more can be said about that. I mean, it was a question I was asking. I'm like, is this what you mean? And he's like, no, that's perfect. I can't add to that at all. So that was what slowly changed my opinion about these details. And I've mentioned this before. Uh, the most glaring example is um, I've actually by accident, taught myself how to translate multiple languages. Um, I was Sanskrit and Pali, as I told you that. Sanskrit, I spent a long time translating because as an autodidact, I wanted a deeper understanding of many of these texts that originate in Sanskrit or other language. I mentioned French and stuff, but that was a lot easier for me. I had to learn to translate Sanskrit so that I could get a deeper understanding of these books, these... these um, uh, these ideas that I had fallen in love with, right? But what happened over the past few years, it, well, certainly for the last 10 years that I've been sick, um, I actually put my energy, my meaning into learning, right? Uh, symptom could be on the spectrum, but for me, I had a goal. I've been trying to learn about trauma. I've mentioned the, the tragedy of trauma is that we know so much, yet we do so little. And what we do do 
has been found wanting, as it were. But that's neither here nor there. Um, so I'd been working on healing inflammation because I'd found the connection between uh, uh, histamine and cortisol, stress and inflammation, right? Because my allergies and my trauma. So I'd actually really gotten close to where we were going. Uh, where we were going, I mean, as an industry, like trauma. This course right now, they're talking about how much has changed in the treatment and understanding of trauma just in the last few years. But it wasn't until I really realized how bleeding edge I was. Right? I've mentioned before that I developed my own way um, to access the Chinese Book of Change, which is the same book that Carl Jung used to access his active imagination. I've always said I used it to access my own intuition. And by accident, I was able to create my own way to use the three-coin method that actually matched the probability, uh, probabilities, I don't know what it would be, of the original Yarrow Stick method. So what I mean is, I found even that I fell on this book that actually gave birth to Jungian psychology and the understanding of uh, modern understanding of individuation and the know thyself. And not only did I fall upon this, I have one of the better translations than even he ever had. And I even have a better access, a better window into the book of change itself. It might not change this intuition and the active imagination, obviously. But for me to realize that I'm not just some scrub, I'm, I have something to be proud of here. The other example is how I've realized in so many translations they've got it wrong. In Sanskrit and in Buddhism, there's this kama chanto, right? Kama being our somatic experience, all of our sensory experience. But kama chanto tends to be translated as sensual, not just senses, but as a sexual sort of connotation, right? Or um, churyi. I've mentioned him before, uh, Master Calm Change, uh, uh, Tree Shirt. Uh, he is a patriarch of Tian Tai, but I also argue patriarch of Zen Buddhism itself. Chan and the practice, not sitting, not walking, uh, a combination of all the above. He's the one that concretized, and I'm stealing that from uh, Joseph Campbell. He's the one that concretized what we consider the modern idea of what mindfulness, Buddhism, and this practice is. Right? I'm among the very few who have actually read um, uh, the translations by Paul Swanson. And not just read, but studied and shared it, explained it. There's many of my podcasts are talking about this um, great individual few of us know about. Or Nietzsche. Uh, in, in fact, that's one of the first things that I'm going to be doing is... Um, a book club on Thuspek Zarathustra because I've realized uh, how many people have not just misunderstood Nietzsche but completely misunderstood Zarathustra and its impact on our civilization not just West but even East right? because we can see in the Kyoto school that Nietzsche uh, heavily influenced uh, this idea I've mentioned it before that the Basho presence, Jung, was influenced by Nietzsche and, and James. James influenced uh, Joyce. I mean, the list is near endless. But the real truth that made me realize that 
I'm not some scrub when it comes to Nietzsche as well is um, uh, Jordan Peterson, who's considered uh, a Jungian psychologist and a big fan of Nietzsche. He recently mentioned Jung's seminars. Again, I don't even know how many there were. It was over a period of like four or five years. He did a bunch of seminars on Zarathustra. Not just Nietzsche, but very specifically on Zarathustra. 1,617 or 77 pages of it. And what's funny is he over and over again misunderstands uh, what Nietzsche was getting at. It's really quite funny. And he didn't need to. Because it's not that hard to get into. And the reason why I mention it is um, I saw someone recommending a different Bible for someone to read because they said the King James Bible is hard to read because the English language has changed. Try this one or that one. And I, I don't know if they're wrong, but they might be right. Because for me, I think no small part the reason why uh, Thus Begs Zarathustra is so misunderstood is partially the translation, but also because the people reading it and translating it. But they use the Thomas Commons translation. I, I think it's because it's it's definitely in the uh, uh, public domain, right? It's a hundred years past the author's death. Right? I'm here in Canada, right? And yet we still don't use. Um, what is it, uh, Mencken? There was an American who was very famous uh, for teaching Nietzsche, and he did some translations as well. They don't use his translation either. Um, besides Thomas Commons, uh, there's another translation that's commonly used, and off the top of my head, I can't remember the guy's name. But it's neither here nor there. What I'm getting at is, there was a, a post in one of my reading groups and someone asked, like, what's your favorite book or book that you absolutely adore or something that changed? For me, it would have to be R.J. Hollingdale's translation of Thus Spake uh, Zarathustra. In fact, I feel that many of the other translations are just a rewording of his because it is so arguably near perfect. Not perfect, right? There's little things like I've mentioned before. Man is the evaluator. Uh, and R.J. Hollingdale calls it the evaluator. I would agree on both. In fact, I personally think that Nietzsche is not dissimilar from Balzac uh, in that it's impossible to translate uh, into another language because of the meaning. Uh, in French, double entente. Um, but in Nietzsche, our one English words just don't cut it. Right? Because if you look at the word that we're translating to valuator or evaluator, it, it is parsing value. It's not just checking off a list, but it's actually um, comparing and deciding. So it really explains what he means by valuing. Valuing is creating and it's meaning. Or uh, Willenmacht, his uh, will to power idea. If you translated his will to power and you ignore everything else he wrote about will in his books, you will get the idea that we all want power. But if you actually read Nietzsche's works, you don't even have to read them in English. You just look at maybe a couple of different translations because you don't have to translate. I mean, you don't have to read every translation. But what I found helpful 
is if there's a section you want a little more understanding to, you could look at the German or even just look at the different translators and see how they interpreted the passage. Right? In fact, there's a couple passages where, which just require a change in punctuation from one translator to another for you to understand exactly what he meant. Right? I've used an example of um, what, uh, I think it's uh, Hinterwelten, or the chapter, uh, the, the Other Worldsmen depending on the translator, uh, the English is different. This idea that um, if you change the punctuation of one of the paragraphs, it changes it from, we are the gods, uh, unsatisfied, in this world of, of colored lights that hypnotize, or uh, we're unsatisfied with the god of this world uh, of colored lights. It, it really matters. It really does matter. But what's beautiful is it can mean both with Nietzsche, and this is why two translations might not line up. But what I was getting at, I apologize, with Dinnenmacht, his will to power. If you actually looked at uh, Macht, which is interesting, right? Mach, um, it's not really power. It is, but look at Mach when it comes to speed. It's very similar. Macht in German, I would argue, is closer to uh, propel, right? So what is it that gives you meaning? What propels your will? If that doesn't tie it all together much more clearly and make you wonder about some of these self-styled experts, whether they really true, truly understand what's going on. But what that led me to was finding writers like E.E. E. Cummings, who felt that you are to learn the rules so as to be able to break them. Or like James Joyce, who created his own language or meaning to fit his narrative or what the story uh, was intended uh, to share. But not in a toxic way, but to inform and inspire. Right? And for me, I now mispronounce purposefully. I laugh when I'm corrected. I mean, jalapeno uh, or epitome, I'll make that joke. Because I don't mind being corrected. In fact... I chuckle because, as I've said before, if you understand the meaning, then why are we getting into this, right? I do not correct those who pronounce foreign words in or as English. Like if uh, someone were to say, hey, yeah, I want to go to Paris. I don't go, hey, bud, it's pronounced uh, Paris. Hey, Gal No, I don't do that. Or um, Quebec. I don't correct people by Quebec, eh? Essay de parler façon ici on est en Canada nous sommes bilingues alors no you don't it's contextual I mean um, I don't know if I even mentioned it in this example did I mention yeah here we go so a recent experience was with the word apropos a pedantic fellow tried to correct me with the fact uh, it is of French origin. And to him, I had bad spelling. But I had to explain to him, since I speak both languages fluently, that the term apropos are used in both languages with the exact same meaning and context. Right? So thus we see another example of what I've called term wars. An affect where we will quibble about word choice or meaning rather than discuss the ideas and the potential, right? So, 
Final thought on this, I think apropos to this idea, I would argue, uh, we will argue about pronunciation over meaning. Right? My take on this is if they understand, right? they understood you've mispronounced, then they understood your idea. Right? And so as I've said, I often make mistakes as a dyslexic that was taught in multiple languages. I'll say things like open the lights or pass the vacuum, which is common. But my favorite is that my wife likes to make fun of me because I use the, the, the words jacket and coat interchangeably. Right? Uh, she likes to correct me right? because a, a jacket is a longer version of a coat or I can't remember exactly how she explains it, but I just reply, you know what I mean. So on that note, I thought I would uh, just share some insights right, on uh, how important an autodidact is. Because otherwise, we'll never learn. Right? If we don't have people that are studying uh, what Nietzsche really meant, right, we have so often do I hear people saying, only edgelords are into Nietzsche. Well, yes, because nobody's ever actually spent the time to understand how wrong we were. I mean, if he influenced Jung, if he influenced William James, if he influenced James Joyce, some of our greatest thinkers, philosophers, and, and writers of, I, I, of humanity, then, then what are we losing? If all of these great thinkers were inspired by this great thinker and we don't understand the thoughts of that great man, then who's really losing out? Right? So who really should be ridiculed? It's not the autodidact who is looking to inspire and, and, and uh, bring light, wisdom, a metaphor for light. Light is a metaphor for wisdom. Looking to help us understand this stuff more. Right? If we were to just carry on, I've mentioned this before, you can look at the syllabi or the syllabuses. You can use that interchangeably, supposedly. I wasn't sure. It sounds better, syllabi. Of all of the courses taught on Nietzsche, and you'll see that if you speak to the students, I've said this before, not only do they not read the books, right? Because I had this discussion recently in a, in a Nietzsche group. We were having a, uh, a get-together, and the question was about Nietzsche's philosophy. And I myself, not to, to sound uh, horrible, but... A lot of people will say that to read Nietzsche, you do have to have a pretty good understanding of Latin, of Greek, of French, and all of these different languages, all of these different authors, right? Hegel, uh, Schopenhauer, uh, you name it. All of these different ideas, these philosophers, Greek. Um, but hardly anyone mentions the importance of... Uh, well, sorry. Uh, hardly anyone mentions the importance to actually understand what he really meant. And sadly, he's, he's influenced a lot of people since uh, the turn of the century, but uh, pretty much since mid-century, last century. So since uh, the 40s, the 50s, there seems to be a misunderstanding. As I said, that American, I think his name is H.L. Mencken, uh, he tried his best to make everyone understand how wrong we were when it came to Nietzsche. I mean, even today I was listening to the audiobook, uh, and once again, you hear his song of hope and faith for the human race. 
And yet, almost every day, I'll hear someone uh, assert that he was a nihilist or this or that. Right? Or how often will I hear misquotes? Not only is, you know, God is dead, long live the Superman, but I actually had someone who purports to be a scholar quote that line and say, oh, well, they missed the extra line and they quote some lines after, but he forgot to mention the preceding lines. Like, which gives you a much more clear understanding the fact that we have lost faith in what we created because we no longer have the morality that was intended to come with it. We have killed the idea of God. All objects are metaphor, right? So stop being so specific and understand the meaning behind the statement. Right? We have died because we don't have the hope or the potential that makes us special. As I've said before, the saddest uh, aspect of uh, the human experience is, is there's no other animal, no other creature on this planet that will actively work against their own best uh, self-interest. I hope you understand what I mean. That they'll work against themselves. But at the same time, there is no other creature on this planet that even in the face of insurmountable odds, or seemingly insurmountable odds, we will continue to fight certain of our victory. So, it's in that irony of opposites that we can actually differentiate because that's the truth it's not ego death we're actually that's why I say ego recontextualization so our job is to understand maybe we were wrong maybe we asked the wrong questions maybe we're unprepared to even ask the correct questions let alone uh, understand the answers that begins with uh, with an understanding as Confucius said right? he said um, better to keep your mouth shut and let fools think you dumb than to open your mouth and remove all doubt right? in this case dumb I mean right? You have nothing uh, of your own to say, is what I'm referring to. If you're a, an automaton or uh, you're a willless being, right? As Nietzsche said, if you're strictly operating on the base of expectation or tradition or habit, then are you truly uh, a being of, uh, of free will, right? So this idea of changing your perspective, changing yourself, changing the universe, is not a karma or an action external. It's immediately upon perception. Uh, in fact, for a last little tidbit, um, I was watching a philosopher, a friend of mine. Uh, he did a little video. He did a little live stream uh, with his Patreon or whatever you'd call them. Pat patrons? Are they still called patrons if it's on Patreon? So yes, he was doing a live stream with his patrons and uh, one of his patrons left uh, a comment uh, mentioning the synchronicity 
It might have been another video, but it doesn't matter. Uh, synchronicity as if synchronicity was an actual thing, right? Uh, meaning that the video came up when he needed it as if some, some guiding hand in the universe placed it there. When in reality, Jung's synchronicity is simply seeing the meaning in chance, right? I've said this before, but I'm going to double down on this idea. Our superpower as a human creature, and also the reason why I say dyslexia is a superpower, our superpower as a human creature is to see, see within the chaos, the entropy, and within it, find our order. I'm not saying there is order in the chaos. I'm actually arguing that there never is order. The only thing we ever perceive is a felt sense of order. What I mean by that is one of the most confusing ideas of philosophy is how time is not what we think it is. The idea that we may not flow forward in time ceaselessly the way we think we do. It's just our perception of the past and the present. Right? The past seems more ordered and less uh, chaotic because we have applied that synchronicity, that, that arbitrary meaning that we choose to see. Whereas the future being so chaotic, so, so entropy-laden, can I say that? That automatically causes us distress. Distress like Basil van der Kolk's called uh, something that impinges our ability to, to be open to anything. So it's in that state that we view the future. And it's the opposite state that we view the past. So the argument is we don't have proof that past, present, or future are of any different state, but we do have proof that our perception, our reaction, and that is different, right? No different than what trauma is. Trauma, they have begun to get a definition that is closer to how I've always defined it, right? Trauma is not the experience. It's not the car accident. It's not your parents abusing you. It's not being in a war per se. It's how we internalize that experience, how we perceive it, so, of course, it depends on your state prior. This is why complex trauma is so damaging because you're already predisposed to be traumatized by anything that'll happen after the first uh, traumatized uh, experience. What I call trauma-informed adaptation. It's, it's, a, it's a horrible thing. It's the tragedy of trauma that uh, if you are the victim uh, of trauma, and I just mean if you've allowed trauma to either uh, impact how you see the world or you carry it forward, if you allow yourself to be a victim of experience, trauma, then uh, you're reliving that moment as if it were in the now. But that's no different than everything of what we were talking about. Right? All we need to do is recontextualize our relationship with the past, the present, or even the future, right? It's all presence, right? So when it comes to, say, trauma or anxiety or fear of the unknown, it all boils down to acceptance. 
right? I mean, you can play around with all of these different protocols that they try to say is the solution, but it all boils down to understanding that pretty much every thought will go through your mind at one time or another. Just don't attach to anything in particular. Certainly not as a human being, we have this negativity bias. So you're going to attach to the most negative likely outcome, catastrophizing, right? So that's really our takeaway. Buddhism, Vedanta, non-dualist, um, alchemical paths, uh, the central path or the golden mean uh, in uh, the Chinese book of change or in uh, the Greek philosophy, uh, the eternal recurrence is accepting everything as ordered. Amarfati is to love your faith, to embrace whatever comes. All of that just boils down to not dissimilar from Carl Friston's free energy. I've mentioned this before. I think eventually he will probably get a prize uh, because he really has codified in science this idea of our reality. So free energy is the mind just left to run, right? Predicting what may come, uh, using its memory, its intuition and cognition to help us parse our worlds, right? So our job is to prevent surprise, as Carl Friston says. Right? Surprise is when our prediction, the brain, this is this predictive matrix, as I call it, has used imagination, our cognition, and our memory to tell us what he thinks is going to happen today. He or she thinks uh, is going to happen today. If the brain is wrong, like for example, um, uh, we're going to go to the park today. And uh, what it ends up happening is we forgot about uh, we had this errand to run and we had this work to do and so-and-so was showing up. So we're not going to the park today. So if you don't accept that, no, we'll have to do the park another day, you will actually suffer. You'll either pangs of what you missed out on or worse yet, you might not even accept it and might live in some sort of alternate fantasy world. Right? So the trick here is Nietzsche's eternal return. Right? The mind is just a predictive engine. For us to think that it can change or manipulate our experience in any way outside of changing our experience and, and our perception and our actions, that's the fantasy. So for us to believe that the mind can, can predict the future or um, we have an expectation on what might or may not come about, that's that surprise. So our job is just to embrace whatever may come, learn from it, and, and roll on forward. Right? It's actually not that dissimilar to some of the studies that we've, uh, we've applied. This idea that... Um, we tend to develop habits, right? It's, uh, it, it, uh, it flows into the idea of the system one and the system two thinking. This idea that so many of us just walk around as right, an unthinking being, uh, an automaton, because we have two levels of thinking. There's the automatic thinking that's very easy, right? This idea of, you know, you, you do the same commute every day and you don't really have to put a lot of thought into it. Whereas driving on a new road, right? You have to watch for the bends and the turns and where, where uh, intersections might be, right? So we want to save our energy. 
So we try to stay in this autopilot as much as possible because it takes a lot more energy for us to use our higher order uh, thinking. But our job is meant to save the energy, not avoid the work or the experience. So we're, we're on a double-edged sword here, right? By nature, we're designed to try to be on autopilot as much as possible, to save that energy, to use that higher order thinking when we need it. But we get so habituated to this automatic pilot that we're not even using our higher order thinking. So we're actually getting ourselves into deeper troubles and we're never actually, uh, like I said, applying our will and we're never learning or growing as a being. So my final thought here is, as I think I've shown, I know I ramble and I randy about a lot. But, you know, I apologize. I'm not great with the scripting. No script on this one today. But the takeaway is that mindfulness can teach you anything. And I argue, we've just been wrong. It's not that we require a minimum use of the high order self. I believe that we just need to work on that. Like the dyslexic, I have to apply my higher order thinking self much more often than most because B's and D's are backwards and I, can, and, and, and I have to really make sure I see what I'm looking at, particularly on computer screens because two words can look completely different to me. Um, and, of course, just, you know, missing uh, the meaning behind it, right? So I argue our mistake is thinking that we're meant to minimize the, the system two thinking, the higher order thinking, when in reality we're meant to develop the mindfulness necessary to reduce the strain using the higher order self. Through mindfulness, through regular use. Uh, I think, uh, who was it that said it? Um, Jelly Rule, a famous, uh, I don't know how famous, but a, a rapper. He was talking about uh, your vocal cords and he said, um, it's like a little bicep and you got to work it. That's the same thing here, right? Your, your, your automatic self gets a lot of workout, right? You use it constantly. But your high order self doesn't get a lot of work. Imagine if you brought in uh, an artist uh, once a year to do some work, as opposed to you know, an artist who works every day. So my takeaway on this is the real problem is not that we need to be more conscious about when we apply our higher order selves and when we're, we're in this uh, automatic mindless state. What we need to do is be more conscious, more mindful, to bring that awareness to bear. We need to be more present. And what that requires is not the automatic self. That requires the higher order self. And I argue that the human creature, the human mind, is the greatest, most plastic organ that this planet's ever seen. And I argue that over time, as proven by high-functioning dyslexics, over time, you can overcome some of these barriers that we assumed were insurmountable. Right? How many times do we see the individual who is able to, um, well, I mean, uh, eidetic memory, for example. I mean, if, if one individual is able to remember everything they see or hear, 
Why is it the average human being doesn't stop and go, wait a minute, maybe it's possible I could read an entire paragraph and not forget what it was about? Because I was there. I used to not even be able to get through a paragraph. I could barely get to the end of a sentence without either my mind wandering or just losing the plot. And eventually, wow, I think all of us can get there, right? But that begins with, it begins with uh, learning how to think and, and learning how to, to speak, learning how to write. I mean, I was always very cynical of that. I didn't think that that was unnecessary for everyone. Gabriel Maté calls it compassionate inquiry. Jordan Peterson calls it self-inquiry, I think. Uh, Hemingway... I think wrote about, um, you know, self-authoring. I think that's what he called it. This idea that the Greeks called uh, know thyself. I used to make fun thinking, oh, what, what good is writing to the average Joe? But if we don't learn how to think and how to express ourselves, if we don't learn logic and reason as well as learning how to navigate both the sense and the nonsense. I've said this before. If we don't learn how to have an open mind, a creative mind, a curious mind, we risk losing ourselves completely. As Nietzsche said, language is the mother of cognition. He put forth a thought experiment. What use would, would, uh, would a person have for language if they were living in a forest? And I understand what he's getting at. He's trying to give us some ideas to think about. But that's very specific. If you think language as in spoken, I argue even alone. I mean, I spend a lot of time alone and, and I have great use of language, of ideas, of images, of thoughts, of metaphors. But I add to Nietzsche's idea that if, if language is the mother of cognition, our ideas, our thoughts, uh, who we are, well then culture is the grandfather. Right? Because language is just a bunch of sounds or pictures of sheds on a piece of paper, without the culture that it's tied to, right? Meaning flows, not from the words themselves, but from the, the culture that uses it and has given the meaning to these words, to these expressions, to the ideas. Right? So, if we're not expressing ourselves, if we're not sharing, if we're not communicating, if we're not living as a community, if we're not sharing ideas, both, you know, welcomed and unwelcomed, right? Challenging ideas as well as welcomed ones. That's how we become who we are. That's how we achieve our um, actualization. Because as, as the philosophers will clearly say, Marshall McLuhan talked about this, that the written language was what allowed us to transcend time and space. We could live forever, as could our ideas. But fast forward to today, are we losing that posterity 
principle. When there's a time limit on our knowledge, right? books going out of print, websites being pulled down, are we risking our very society, our very selves? Without an understanding of who we are, how can we understand what and where we are in relation to anything? So, as a final thought, that's really what I'd like to recommend. When people are getting trapped in mispronunciations or uh, word choice, and we ignore the meaning, the message, or the ideas behind, are we risking our very selves? Are we at risk of becoming the very herd animal that we were warned of in Nietzsche's Zarathustra. And Jung repeated in his Liber Novus this idea that until we begin to practice individuation, until we understand our place in the universe as the I versus the self, right, the persona that we perceive to be us versus truly who we are, to see the unity of opposites, right? To see that you have a darkness in you as well as a light. And it's not till we come to terms with the truth of who we are that we can actually bring to bear our cognition, right? It's not till we minimize the trauma of existence itself that we can actually reduce that brain fog that we all suffer from to be able to interact with the world in an authentic and present way. And it's then and there that we find ourselves on the field ready to take action. And without that, without an understanding of what thinking, without an understanding of what, what the psyche is, an understanding of what our goal is to work together to help us all achieve more when we spend our days consuming or criticizing or judging I do my own trust me do we find ourselves trapped right arguably that's the freeze in trauma right the worst kind of trauma is when you have to override your your instincts, your genetics, when you are trapped in a situation that is sheer chaos or terror and you have no way to get out, you have nothing left but to deal, but to cope, but to work with, to live within. That can cause trauma. And that is existence.